0: Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the Research Professor of Bible
1: and Theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and as always, thank you for listening. If this is your first time, please check out our website, apologetics.org, and follow us on social media at the C.S. Lewis Society. Uh, And today we have a very special guest with us. I'm excited uh, to be bringing him on. I've been looking forward to this. Clayton Brumby, how are you doing today?
0: Hey, I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks so much. It's good to be with you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for being here. And uh, how's your week going?
0: Uh, Doing fine. Trying to get my wife through knee surgery and and playing house nurse. Uh, Other than that, uh, just working away.
1: Absolutely. And one of the wonderful things, uh, uh, mentioning that here, is that you might get some Christians hear you and pray for you. (laughs) <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you got <laughs> at we least one. Use
0: it. Yeah, we can use it. Yeah.
1: Now, um, you, you do some really interesting stuff, and before we start getting into the details of that, who is Clayton Brumby?
0: Well, Clayton Brumby is a Florida native, grew up in Miami, uh, went to Florida State uh, for college, uh, Bellhaven College in Jackson, Mississippi and Florida State uh, to finish things out. Uh, my early career was spent in youth ministry. Uh, and then uh, and then in sales uh, since then uh, and I'm just getting to that age of retirement so about to wrap things up but I still love ministry among teenagers and uh, college students my my mentor in high school my youth ministry uh, my youth minister in high school. Uh, has never left youth ministry, never used youth ministry to wow. go, to go into adult ministry. And he said the reason for that is that he could accomplish more than in four years in the life of a teenager than he could in forty in the life of an adult. And he That's still incredible. has people, yeah, he still has people contacting him from forty years ago, and he he was absolutely right about that. So, This is where my wheelhouse is, uh, and it's I've just never left college. I guess.
1: And and so I just I have a question that that's that resonates with me because uh, many of our listeners know I am a youth pastor, Mm -hmm. um, and I do a lot of apologetic stuff with their youth and everything. But uh, do you have like a niche toward students, like teenagers? And
0: well, my my uh, my wheelhouse would be the intellectually invested uh, high school uh, and college student. Uh, people wow. aren't afraid to ask questions and, and you know, put their hand in the cookie jar, so to speak, and see what's going on. So that's um, uh, some of the stuff that I deal with is not your run-of-the-mill uh, high school ministry. It it really speaks to kids that are invested in the life of the mind. So uh, that's, that's what wow. I gravitate toward.
1: Yeah, that, that is huge. And I think far too often people don't realize what teenagers are capable of. Uh, I mean, they need apologetics. They need to to, to learn how to defend the faith. And uh, that's wonderful that you're out there doing that. And your youth pastor story sounds awesome. Uh, But that's not the only unique thing about you. I know I don't want to misrepresent what you do here because it is really unique. But you do a performance uh, called Siegfried and Me, which I've actually seen personally. And it was incredible. Uh, So why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how that started?
0: Yeah, uh, a few years ago, serving on the board with uh, Tom in, in the C.S. Lewis Society, I got to know a man named Keith Gilgore, Gilgore and his, uh, his son had been in the service, uh, had been overseas, uh, was a staunch evangelical Christian in high school, and uh, got back from the war zones and, in, and entered uh, Jefferson Community College in Watertown, New York. And it was in a biology class that he challenged the prevailing Darwinian view, and his professor suggested that he go check out Richard Dawkins' *The God Delusion*, which he did. He checked it out of the library, went home and read it, uh, lost his faith, and ended up taking his own life.
1: Wow! Um,
0: and uh, and the it, that that to me spoke volumes because we were are losing you know two thirds of our of our high school students that take off for college will walk away from their faith in the the last years of high school and through college and into their early 20s, um, many of them are just trying to figure things out, and they're getting away from mom and dad, so they're doing that, and they eventually will come back. About half of them will come back, but the other half is gone for good. And normally it's because when they enter the, the AP courses in high school or they're, they enter uh, the college humanity courses, biology courses, um, they get a very staunch uh, secularist view. Of life, mm-hmm. and they're not prepared. They do not have the tools to deal with defending their faith in the midst of that. Um, it was interesting uh, back in 1998, atheist Peter Atkins from Oxford debated William Lane Craig at the Carter Center in Atlanta. <clears throat> and if you go back and look at this video, uh, Peter Atkins loses this debate. Not not just slightly. He he gets slaughtered by Craig. And, he uh, tends to do that.
1: <laughs> to
0: anybody that's around, but uh, the the problem is that when the high school or college student is walking into the classroom, uh, they don't have a balanced view of things. They don't. When when a seasoned atheist like Lawrence Krauss or uh, uh, the Christoph, late Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins has the stage to themselves, they sound very compelling. Um, the mm-hmm. argument sounds very strong. It's like Proverbs says, the first man to make his case sounds right until he's cross-examined. Yeah, uh, absolutely. If, they, if they're on the stage with a seasoned apologist like a John Lennox from Oxford or William Lane Craig or any n- number of others, uh, they're checked and sometimes checked pretty hard. But the high school or college student doesn't get this when they walk into those classrooms. They get one side of the story. And uh, it's pretty expensive to pull off a debate between one of these uh, high-end atheists and an an apologist, Uh, and it's not something the local church can do. So I said, well, what if I take the very best arguments from the Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Lawrence Krauss, put them into a monologue, and do a short play presentation where I'll come out for the first 20 minutes as Siegfried Faulkner, a visiting professor from Germany, and make that case and let the audience feel wow. for the first time they're listening to an atheist. Now, I don't use sometimes the colorful language that an atheist will, but yeah. I, I make, uh, at the end of my talk, um, my audiences are sometimes a bit traumatized, but, and they're saying, oh my gosh, this is where my kid's going. Um, I remember when I'm putting the script together, feeling a little uncomfortable uh speaking about God in the way that Siegfried did but I and I went to the Lord about it. I said, Hey, God <laughs> about this and he says he says, It's it I it, I felt he said to me, It's a good copy, run with it. So I, I went on and I put this together and then it's it's the play is a kind of a botch situation where scheduling messes things up and Siegfried has the stage to himself for twenty minutes. And then he has to leave to catch his flight. And five minutes later, I come back in with a baseball cap on. I've changed my shirt, and, and I come mm. back in as the Christian apologist. And then I take—I've listened online to everything he said, and I take his 12 assertions, and I answer them over the next hour and, and 20 minutes. It takes a whole lot more time to unpack or answer than it is to raise a question. So um, Wow.
1: And, and you had come to, uh, actually, to Trinity College— Um, to do this performance in in this uh, monologue uh, at one point. And I remember in the classroom, even though we were warned the week before exactly what you were coming to do, and and obviously you were a friend of Dr. Woodward's, and uh, there were still students when you were done with the Siegfried section who were like, who is this atheist guy and they were they were fully convinced that you genuinely were an atheist from Germany who was coming to uh-huh. try to uh dishearten them it that's, and it was just hilarious it's
0: a that's a great a compliment because i I will get people you know they're looking at me I come back on stage and and people are looking at says where so where do the atheists go and i mean we're, we're we look identical because it's me but uh but the the change in in personality and character is such that people Get both sides uh, in dramatic format, and when they leave, they've had so much information coming at them that it's impossible for them to remember it. Um, so I I tell them at the beginning of my talk, the second talk, uh, don't worry about remembering this stuff. You you have to remember. You don't have to remember the answers. You just have to remember that there are answers. And if they go to the website for Siegfriedandme.com, the entire script is printed out. Uh, on that website, they can go to any assertion and look at the answer um, it 's a two hour presentation that is a memorized script it 's a monologue and uh, in order to get through all this material in two hours it has to be done succinctly and articulated well so um, it's, uh, it 's you wouldn 't think Somebody could remember something for two hours, but you know, back in the day, the Jews remember the entire Old Testament. So
1: yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it just depends what you what you put your mind to, and I think it's it's so important what you're doing and uh equipping people, especially going to to university, secular universities. Uh Pastor, uh, I love to listen to named Vodi bakum He said something along the lines of, "If you're going to send your kids to Caesar, don't be surprised when they come back as Romans." Yes. Um, they have to be prepared for this. They yes. have to know, uh, and like you said, you don't have to know every single answer to every question, but you have to understand there are there are answers. Yes, and we have a responsibility to uh, examine these things. Yes. Um, so, if you'd like, uh, I thought it'd be cool if we could get into some of the questions yeah. that you had uh, yeah. that you had answered throughout hmm. your throughout your performance. And um, the first one, and I think this one is is. Uh, just huge today in 2020 and has been for quite some time but what do you say to the skeptic or to even the christian who says hey i mean do we really still believe in christianity with science and all the findings that uh you know science has accomplished at this point what do we do with the science versus christianity debate do we really still need god to kind of fill in these gaps (laughs) anymore or can we just do away with that whole
0: yeah let me, uh, let me step back one, at one point here because I've kind of been thinking this through, Nick. Uh, when I, I, I like to call kind of what I do Major League Apologetics um, because there's basically four bases that any worldview has to address and uh, address well to be valid. Um, it's basically four bases. One is uh, logical, one is historical, one is scientific, and one is existential, how we understand things like evil, how we understand uh, the problem of evil, which cannot be answered actually outside of a, a, a God reference. Um, if God's not in the picture, uh, evil doesn't exist. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Yeah. Uh, but they have to be able to answer those four things well. And the Christian worldview does a better job, a far better job, of, of addressing these issues than science does. And, uh, and I would love to walk into a science classroom uh, anywhere in America and make that case. Uh, the, the issue, the logical issue, for instance, is the beginning of the universe. Uh, the scientific issue is how we deal with Darwin. And, and the problems that Darwin raises for himself, um, uh, the Cambrian explosion, uh, the whole the whole uh, idea of mutation and selection is a non-starter uh, for Darwin. Darwin uh, trips over and falls on his face before uh, the theory ever walks out the door because of that uh, formula itself, mutation and selection. So historically we have the resurrection, and, uh, and then existentially we have how we, uh, you know, where does consciousness come from? Uh, it's not just atoms firing in the brain. We've done there's scientific research, valid uh, and formidable scientific research on the table that it's not just the firing of the syn- synapses in the brain. Um, and then what do we do with the issues like, like evil and morality, and where do, how do we handle those things? So the Christian worldview addresses those four aspects far better than anything in secularism or materialism uh, can do.
1: Wow! Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Um, so when somebody poses a question, let's say for example, uh, well, I mean, Darwinism is is proven at this point. You just have to be silly to disbelieve it. Where do you go with that? How do you how do you even start a conversation with let's say let's say going up to somebody who maybe just got a, a two year college degree or a bachelor's degree and knows a little bit about Darwinism? How do you how do you begin? It seems intimidating.
0: Uh, yeah. It, it would be easier for me, basically, to go up to the Ph.D. Uh, in the university. <laughs> and uh, I have in my card, I carry around a $200 gift card from Ruth Chris Steakhouse. And it's called the Ruth Chris Challenge. Uh, give me 20 minutes in front of your students to turn virtually everybody in your classroom into a post-Darwinist. If I can't do that, you get to keep the card. Take your wife to dinner.
1: Wow. So Can I uh, try? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but the idea is this. Uh, Darwin uh, Darwin was a, a a good scientist, and he, uh, 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 he knew that for his theory to be a scientific theory, it had to be falsifiable, and he gave us a falsification criterion in the origin of species. Uh, the comment is, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down, but I can find no such case. What he's saying here is that natural selection is going to hone the creature or hone the organism. Um, he didn't know where the mutation came from. Uh, we do. We did find uh, when we got into the uh, early 20th century, uh, uh, Mendel had done work in genetics, and so we we kind of brought those two works together: uh, Darwin and Mendel, and it became the neo-Darwinian synthesis. Uh, we found out uh, in into the mid 20th century that uh, the mutation will be found in the DNA of the organism. Uh, there'll be a mistake. Uh, it will be brought out. Uh, it, it will form some feature in the creature that will then be uh, then uh, formed by natural selection or chosen by natural selection. The problem, of course, and then and, and then mutation selection is the whole is the whole formula that gets this done. It's a very simple formula and that's, that's what should cause us uh, a little suspicion that it can be something so simple because we have a world around us that is not simple. In any case, the problem for Darwin is that you can't even get that formula started without involving a complex. Here's the idea. The mutation can't be in DNA just anywhere. We have 37.2 trillion cells in our, in our body Uh, It's got to be found in the germ cells uh, in order to make it into the next generation and impact speciation. So we're going to take a community-wide or universe-wide organism and we're going to shrink the community of trials down to the germ cells themselves. Now, the problem here is that when I go in to find that mutation, I've got to open up the DNA. Well, what has to happen for that to occur Well, you have a little machine come along called the helicase, and think of a helicopter is spinning, the helicase attaches itself to the DNA and unwinds the DNA and opens it up so it can be read. Then we have a little machine come along called the RNA polymerase, which reads and copies the interior bases of the DNA in order to make the transcript that will then go off. Well, what do we have there, Nick? Well, we have three things operating together to perform a function. That is a complex. So right at the very beginning, in order to get to the mutation, we have to utilize the very thing that Darwin said would cause this theory to absolutely break down, which is a complex.
1: Wow. So that that's sort of like the uh, the irreducible complexity exactly. stuff. Where...
0: Exactly. Michael Behe had it right. Uh, Kenneth Miller had it wrong. Uh, but you can't even begin the process for for the whole mutation selection deal without opening the door using a complex. Now... Here's where it gets it gets interesting from there on out. So if we have if we have the the helicase and the polymerase, the letter opener and the reader show up and DNA's not there, there's nothing to read. If we have the polymerase show up and the DNA there, but the helicase is not there, we can't get to it to read it. And if we have the polymerase there and the DNA there, but but the the helicase is there, we can't you know. The, well, I mean, the, uh, the the reader-copier, the helicase is there to open it up, but the reader-copier is not. Nothing gets read. So so you have a complex there. If this is not a complex, then complexes don't exist. And if complexes don't exist, then Darwinian theory is not scientific because it can't be falsifiable. Now, if you take, if you take this one step further, the, the, the transcript that the RNA polymerase puts together has a mean length of 27,000 bases. It's just huge transcript we can't use it to make anything in the organism we have to go find the specific recipe called for so this little uh, this transcript is then going to go off to a machine called the spliceosome which is the editing suite in the cell and we're going to reduce that transcript by over 95 percent we're going to go to a transcript from 27,000 bases long to one that's 1300 that's the mature messenger RNA we still haven't made anything so the mature messenger RNA will go from the spliceosome out through the cellular wall, which is a, the nuclear pore complex, which is another story in itself, to the ribosome, where it's going to be translated into the finished product, the protein. Once that's done, the protein will then go off and either become part of the, the feature or the feature that is then selected for. And it is at this point, for the first time, that anything becomes visible to Darwinism. Everything else before that was under the radar, okay? So Darwinism didn't create this system. It's this system from mutation to selection that actually allows Darwinism to work. That's why I say it falls in its face before it ever gets out the
1: door. Yeah, that, that's, abs- I mean, that's such a good point. And, and if you think back, like Darwin did not know any of this stuff. I mean, they hadn't even discovered the double helix structure of DNA yet. It was nope. just a whole different world. That was hundred years later, yep. and, and now, unfortunately, we, we see the outworking of this worldview of Darwinism. On the other hand, uh, with the young man who had taken his own life, which is a, a, just a tragedy. But that is what that is what Darwin. That is what no meaning in life, and uh, being taught that we're animals. That's what that leads to, uh, and it's very unfortunate. Um, and, yeah, and
0: if, if if this all, if this is all nature kind of figuring it out from Goop to Greg. Uh, then, yeah, there is no meaning, which gets us to the existential question, which we'll deal with in a little bit. But, yeah, the materialist view of life uh, is incapable of answering so much about us. But the problem is the, material, the materialist view of life is simply wrong because it's based on a theory that can't get out
1: the door. Yeah. That's the issue. Wow. So, no, and that... And
0: Darwinism is the cornerstone to Western secularism. Mm-hmm. It's the absolute cornerstone to the prevailing philosophies on the college campus in academia today, and if it goes if it goes away uh everything else begins can be open then again for questions yeah, So and... it is to make the case against darwinism uh is is paramount.
1: No, it, it, it truly is and I think it's, it's so important for people to be educated. And, they're, and, and we're taught from childhood all the way through universities that this is it. Uh, this is all that there is. And if we don't have an answer for that, it, like we just said, it leads to, to tragedy uh, or yep. worse. Yeah. Um, and we, I mean, that was that was amazing. We have about two and a half minutes, and I just wanted to ask a quick question. You you uh-huh. mentioned, and then we'll get into a lot more next week, of course, because you're coming back sure. next week. You'd said, and that's going to be wonderful. Um, and so, you had briefly mentioned earlier the Kalam cosmological sort of argument, where uh, the creation people will say that <coughs> the universe didn't need to be created. Uh, how, how can we kind of quickly respond to that? Where, where should our thinking head when somebody says something like that?
0: Well, the serious scientists uh, would agree with William Lane Craig on the Kalam cosmological argument pretty much all the way through. There is a uh, uh, a physicist at, I think, Arizona State, uh, Lawrence Krauss, that wrote the book, A Universe From Nothing, and he got thoroughly panned by his peer uh, physicist because he was involved in um, uh, in a logical fallacy the fallacy of equivocation he used the word nothing when it meant nothing of the kind <laughs> he was talking about uh, a, a quantum vacuum yeah, certainly that not would nothing. allow for yeah that would allow for all sorts of uh, things to happen there's energy in that vacuum there are physical laws that describe the vacuum and when he tried to make the case that uh, that the universe could come out of something like that, uh, he got stopped and stopped quickly. Uh, the problem problem is that in the Kalam Cosmological Argument, um, we have three stages. Um, things that begin to exist have a cause. The universe began to exist. The universe has a cause. And uh, why do we know premise number one is true? Because nothing truly comes from nothing. Nothing is what, as Aristotle said, what rocks dream about. If there's nothing there, there's nothing to do anything with. So there had to be something there. Where does that something come from? Well, it comes from God. The universe began to exist. The universe uh, had a cause. And the the simple illustration is if I have a book in front of me, and I'm on page 36 of the book, could I ever have gotten to page 36 if I had to read an infinite number of pages before it? No. No. I could never get to any page in the book if I had to read an infinite number of pages before. Therefore, anything that is material has to have a beginning. If it has a beginning, it has to have a cause. Well, let's say, well, what about God? Doesn't God, Wouldn't God uh, fit that bill? No, because God is outside of space, time, and matter. Uh, at the beginning of the universe, space, time, and matter began. Uh, so, the be- so the cause of space, time, and matter has to be outside of space, non-spatial or transcendent, outside of matter, immaterial, uh, and outside of time, timeless or eternal. Those are three basic characteristics of God. So you can't bring him into the picture and say, well, he needs an explanation too. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Siegfried asked is, he said, well, God must be as complex as the universe that he creates. Uh, You cannot have something in the effect that's not in the cause, or we we really do have something from nothing.
1: It's such a powerful argument. We've known for centuries that, created gods are a delusion well clayton brumby thank you so much for being here uh, thank you for listening and we'll see you back here next week at the universe next door